right, well, good afternoon. Thank you guys for joining me here today. This is a, a very dedicated crowd coming in right before the dinnertime time uh, after a long day of lectures in a very cold room. So I appreciate you guys uh, being here. So um, first, I'll turn this on. Okay, there we go. Um, so first disclosures, I am an advisory board member for these two companies. And the uh, learning objectives today, um, want to differentiate between acute and chronic pain, want to recognize the role of interdisciplinary care and pain management, and explain the data supporting the use of different psychological interventions in pain treatment. But I'm going to start by putting pain in context. Um, how many of you are here at Pain Week for the first time? Okay, so a good number of people. How many of you are psychologists? Okay, a good number of folks. How many people in primary care? How many folks, uh, pain specialists, so PM&R, anesthesia? Okay, so a good, good mixture of folks. So if you've been to any pain conference in the last seven years, almost everybody at some point is going to open with a slide that looks like this at some point in time, um, with the IOM report from 2011. So the Institutes of Medicine put out a report in 2011 that um, highlighted the incidence of pain within this country. And what they found is that chronic pain affects approximately 100 million U.S. adults, and this is more than the number of people affected by heart disease, cancer, and diabetes combined. But what's even more impressive is the estimated annual cost of approximately half a trillion dollars in medical treatment and lost productivity. Right? Now, what's staggering as these figures are, this is actually still an underestimate of pain within this country, both in terms of the number of people and the costs. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that this is an underestimate? What do you see missing here? Yeah, there's no pediatric population listed here, right? Also, this didn't include people that were incarcerated. This didn't include people that were in the armed forces. So you can assume that when we start to include these groups that were not included, uh, the figures would probably be significantly higher, right? So clearly pain is a pretty significant issue that we have to grapple with, which is part of the reason why all of you are at Pain Week, right? But what causes pain? Right? Unfortunately, it's not as easy as Gary Larson would like for us to believe. You know, I'm sure our GI colleagues would love it if somebody came in with GI pain and all we had to do was send them a surgery, they cut them open and pull the porcupine out, right? That would be really lovely if it were that easy. But unfortunately, it's not, right? We know that there are biological factors, there are physical factors that we know that cause pain. I'm going to focus a little bit more on some of the different psychological factors that are associated with pain. So Curry and Wang were looking at the relationship between depression and low back pain, and they used data from the National Population Health Study in Canada. And so this uh, survey collects information on mental health status, lifestyle behaviors, healthcare utilization, SES information. And there are approximately 9,900 respondents. And they filled out the survey at two different time points with approximately two years separating the two time points. And what they found is that if a person endorsed the presence of depression at time one, they were three times more likely to endorse onset of low back pain in the intervening two years. Right? Now, for those of you who are sitting here saying, yeah, that's great, but that's Canada. We're the U.S., right? Well, we're not that different from our neighbors to the north, right? Uh, the, National, the National Institutes of Mental Health was interested in looking at the frequency of psychiatric disease in this country. And they, were, they did a study over the course of uh, about 13 to 16 years in the 1980s and 1990s. And they were, again, looking at the prevalence of psychiatric disease in the U.S. And in the Baltimore catchment area, uh, they specifically looked at people, um, and they found that over the course of the 13 years, in three waves, that data was collected. If a person endorsed a history of depressive symptoms at time one or time two, very similar to the Curry and Wang study, they were three times more likely to endorse the onset of low back pain in that period of time. 
But this is just depression. This is just an affective state. What about life experiences? Right? How do life experiences shape what our experiences are over the course of time? How does that affect health and lifestyle factors? Well, this is something that interested folks both at Kaiser and at the CDC. Um, they're interested in understanding more about how life experiences influence our health and behavior outcomes over time. And so they gathered data, started gathering data on individuals um, within the Kaiser system in the late 1990s. And it was approximately 17,000 individuals. And they're continuing to collect data on these people uh, to this day. And what they're interested in learning is how not just life experiences, but specifically negative life experiences influence a person's development over the course of time. So the authors identified nine specific adverse life experiences. Uh, physical and emotional neglect. And physical neglect is basically not having the basic physical needs that a person might have, uh, clothing, uh, shelter, things along those lines. Um, emotional neglect is not having the emotional regard or emotional connectedness with people in the household. Recurrent emotional abuse. Uh, emotional abuse is characterized by a lot of harsh words. You're stupid. You can't do anything right. You're not good enough. Recurrent physical abuse. Sexual abuse that involves contact. Um, anybody in the household having problems with substance abuse. Anybody in the household being incarcerated. Uh, chronic mental illness in the house. Witnessing the mother being treated violently or being raised by one or no parents. And they found that the higher the number of these adverse childhood experiences that a person had, uh, the more risk, the more at risk people were for developing medical and psychiatric disease, chemical dependency, substance abuse issues, uh, health-related quality of life issues. It was predictive of uh, partner violence, sexual activity, and suicidality. Right? And this is a study that's ongoing. So they're continuing to collect data on these individuals. But actually, we can look back at the literature and see that there's already evidence for some of this. Paris looked at the literature spanning approximately three decades and found that there was a significant association between a person endorsing a history of sexual abuse and having a lifetime diagnosis, meaning they develop a diagnosis of functional GI disorders, nonspecific chronic pain, non-epileptiform seizures, or chronic pelvic pain at some point in the person's lifetime. But again, that's adverse life experiences. What about psychological factors in general? So Celestin was interested in understanding how uh, psychological screening for different psychological risk factors is how useful is that in predicting outcomes from different kinds of lumbar procedures, specifically things like spinal cord stimulator, uh, implants, uh, spinal fusions, different types of lumbar surgery. And they defined successful outcomes as decreased pain, increased function, return to work, and reduced medical treatment. And what they found was that there was a positive relationship between uh, one or more psychological factors and poor treatment outcome in over 90% of the studies that they reviewed. Right? So what was interesting is the most useful predictors of poor outcome from these lumbar procedures were pre-surgical somatization, depression, anxiety, and poor coping. But interestingly, the factors that were minimally predictive of uh, successful outcomes were pre-treatment physical findings, activity interference, and pre-surgical pain intensity. Now, why I find this interesting is if you talk to surgical colleagues, generally speaking, what are some of the factors that are most, that are stronger factors in terms of when they're going to pursue surgery? It's that interactive part of the discussion. <laughs> it's 
those lower things, right? Oftentimes they'll look at the imaging studies, they'll look at their physical findings, uh, how much, uh, whatever the issue is, is interference function, and those will be the factors that help determine whether or not they move somebody into surgery. But the reality is, is these are minimally predictive in uh, determining outcome compared to uh, the psychological factors. So taken all together, what does all this stuff mean, right? The reality is, is in the, the decade and a half that I've been working in the field of pain, I would say that it's a very small minority, perhaps less than 1% of the patients where their pain is rooted 100% in psychogenic factors. But it's virtually 90 plus percent, almost 100% of the patients where their psychological factors strongly influence their experience of pain, right? And so we wanna make sure that we pay attention to these psychological factors, but don't just assume that they're the cause of somebody's pain, but that these things are influencing it, right? And I love this slide because it's a not so veiled depiction of my wife. Um, the pain starts in my husband's lower back, then it travels up his, neck, up his spine to his neck, then it comes out of his mouth and into my ears, and that's why I get these headaches. So for those of you who know Amy, then you know that's very true. All right. So that's, that's looking at the role of psychology and the, and the onset of pain. But what about the role of psychology in pain treatment? Before we start talking about this, we have to understand a little bit more about pain itself. So let me ask you guys this. We have a, a smattering of people from different fields. We have different physicians, different physician groups, different, uh, we have psychologists. Does pain serve any purpose or function? Yeah, it's a warning sign, right? In its most primitive form, that's the primary function of pain. It alerts us to some sort of damage that's occurring in the body so that we can take some sort of immediate action to prevent more harm from occurring to that part of our body, right? So for example, if I'm in the kitchen, if I'm cooking on the stove, what that tells you about me is I'm a liar because I never go in the kitchen and I don't cook on the stove. But hypothetically speaking, if I was, if my hand touches the burner, I'm going to feel pain, right? And that's going to be a warning sign to move my hand away from the stove. If I didn't feel that pain, what would end up happening to my hand? It would burn, right? I'd have pretty catastrophic injury. So the pain served a functional purpose, right? It alerted me to damage and allowed me to protect that part of my body. But is that true of all pain? Is all pain a warning sign that there's some sort of active damage occurring and we need to do something right now to prevent more harm from occurring to the body? I see a lot of people shaking their head no. You just, you just saved yourself an additional two hours of me talking at you. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, and this is where we get to the differences between two very broad categories of pain, acute pain and chronic pain. In acute pain, the pain that a person experiences, the hurt that a person experiences, is a sign of some sort of active damage occurring in the body, right? Just like that example I gave of my hand touching the burner. I'm experiencing pain, there's some sort of active damage occurring. And the behavior of avoidance serves some sort of adaptive purpose, right? As I move my hand away from the burner, it serves something functional and it decreases the damage in my body, right? In the case of chronic pain, the pain is real. And this is really important to recognize that pain is absolutely real, but it's not a sign of active damage occurring in the body that requires some sort of immediate intervention or action to prevent more harm from occurring. Right? It may be related to a previous accident, previous injury, but it's not a sign that there's some sort of immediate threat in the body that requires immediate action. But the problem is, is that if a person interprets their pain as a sign that there's some sort of active damage occurring right now, what's the natural inclination of the person gonna be? They're gonna, well, they're going to have anxiety, but they're quite likely going to pull away from engaging in activity, right? Out of fear that this is causing some damage in their body, right? And as they pull away from activity, that can actually worsen the pain condition over time for reasons that we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. 
But that starts to trigger what we call a fear avoidance cycle, where people start to avoid activity secondary to fear that it's worsening their condition. And that'll actually worsen the condition over the course of time. The avoidance behavior itself actually worsens the condition. Acute pain oftentimes has a very clear cause that's oftentimes single in nature, and it's got a very clear pathway. You know, going back to the same example that I gave at the start of my hand touching a burner, right? There's a clear cause as to why I'm experiencing pain in that particular part of my body. But chronic pain is a bit more ambiguous, and it's multifactorial, right? Just because we can give a pain condition a name doesn't necessarily mean we understand exactly why it's there. And we can give pain condition names, right? We understand uh, fibromyalgia. We have names for things like complex regional pain syndrome. We can even identify a particular nerve that's been damaged. But what we can't say is why is it that if two people have the exact same mechanism of injury, one person goes on and develops chronic pain, but another person doesn't? We know that there's a wide range of different risk factors, which is what the first set of slides that I went over went, reviewed, but predisposition and cause are two different things. Right? So it's certainly, there are a lot more unknowns, a lot more ambiguity with chronic pain, and also uh, multifactorial in nature. And then lastly, the, the treatment course. By definition, acute pain goes away. Right? We know that there's a very clear treatment path that we often use for acute pain. Using another example, if I'm, if I'm running down the hall and I trip and I fracture my ankle, that's confirmation that I am a liar because I don't run because that's exercise and that just doesn't happen in my world. But if I did, and if I fractured my ankle, I go to my doctor's office, right? And she would probably tell me to mobilize, right? If I have a fractured ankle and if I keep on walking on that ankle, what's going to end up happening? It'll worsen, right? So that immobilization is essential to my recovery. I may be given medications. Right? I may be given short-acting medications, opioids such as oxycodone, hydrocodone, things along those lines. But I'm only taking those for a brief period of time until my body heals, right? And then I'm not going to have to take those drugs anymore. But in the case of chronic pain, there's no fixed endpoint. We don't have an endpoint for chronic pain. But that has direct implications with those other two pieces, right? We know that if a person with chronic pain immobilizes, that'll actually worsen the pain condition over the course of time. Um, we also know that we have to have a lot more caution now with the medications, because now we're talking about a condition that doesn't have an endpoint. And so we have to have a lot more appreciation for a number of different variables, such as dependence, psychological dependence, physical dependence, tolerance, addiction. And I've got a talk later in the week, I think on Friday, where we're going to go into those terms and what their meanings are and what the implications are in a bit more detail. That doesn't mean that there's no role for meds in chronic pain, but just that we have to have a lot more caution with the drugs. So if we look at acute and chronic pain, they're two completely different beasts, right? And if we treat chronic pain using acute modalities, we're not going to get too terribly far. But beyond not getting too terribly far, it's actually a disservice to the patient because if we keep using acute modalities, we're not going to necessarily help the person move forward. They're going to get stuck, and quite, quite likely they're going to start to move backward in terms of their functioning. Right? So we need to take a different approach to chronic pain. And the approach that we take with chronic pain is the exact same way that we approach any kind of chronic health condition that doesn't have a cure, and that's management. Right? There's a lot of different health conditions that we don't have a fix or a cure for, but that doesn't mean that it's game over if a person gets diagnosed with these different conditions. Heart disease, asthma, diabetes. We don't have a way to make these things go away, but instead our treatments focus on maximizing quality of life, maximizing functioning. Right? Diabetes is one of the most common chronic conditions that's out there, right? Do we have a 
way to fix diabetes? Is there a surgery or a pill that just makes it go away? No, right? Again, interactive part, right? No, there's no, there's no fix for diabetes, right? But what do we do if a person has diabetes? What kinds of things do they have to do to manage their condition? Have to watch their diet, exercise. If they're medication or insulin dependent, they have to take their medications, insulin, they have to monitor wounds. And if they do these things, they're not cured of diabetes, but they can still have a very good quality of life, right? Well, it's the same thing in chronic pain. We know that there's several ingredients or several components that are involved with optimally managing a chronic pain condition. The first piece is medical optimization. And this is where physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants come into play. And this is looking at all aspects of a person's medical condition and making sure that it's optimized. Is a person on too much medication? Are they on too little medication? Are they taking the most appropriate medications for their condition? Is there a role for implantable therapies? Is there a role for injection therapies? Is surgery warranted? Additional imaging necessary? These are all the questions that the physicians, nurse practitioner, PAs address in their, in their aspect of care. The second component is physical reconditioning. And this is taking a look at all aspects of a person's physical functioning and making sure that it's optimized. We know that when a person has pain in a particular part of their body, there's a tendency to guard that part of their body to, to sort of protect it. Right? If I've got pain in the right side of my low back, then I'm going to tend to protect that part of my body. Every time I get in and out of a chair, every time I get in and out of a car, I'm going to minimize how much I use that part of my body. But what can end up happening as a result of that is I can start to have atrophy of the muscles in that area, which can cause a worsening of the problem, or I may end up overusing the left side, which can cause further problems downstream because of that compensation mechanism that I'm using. So physical therapy oftentimes focuses on these very issues and helps keep a person as active as possible, including the muscle groups affected by their pain condition, making sure that any compensation mechanisms they're using isn't causing additional problems for them further down the line. And the last piece is behavior and lifestyle modification. And this is typically where psychology comes in. We know that regardless of what the cause of a pain condition is, Different substances, different stressors, different emotional states can all influence and intensify that pain experience. And so psychology comes in in terms of helping patients learn more about what these factors are and what can they do to start to influence some of these things. So optimal pain management is a combination of all these factors working together. And that's what we call an interdisciplinary approach to pain. Unfortunately, patients can't pick and choose which of these things that they want to do. That will be the same thing as a diabetic who picks and chooses what they want to do in terms of their diabetes management, right? What would happen if a diabetic said, you know what, this Splenda doesn't taste like real sugar, so I'm not going to stick to this diet. And yeah, I really hate needles, so I'm not going to check my sugars or take my insulin. And man, I hate sweating, so I'm not going to exercise. But you know what, I'll take my meds and I'll monitor my wounds. Is their condition going to be optimized? No. Right? And they're going to have some pretty catastrophic outcomes, right? Well, it's a similar thing with pain. Uh, you know, fortunately, pain won't have fatal outcomes, but it can still have pretty catastrophic outcomes in terms of sapping quality of life. Uh, we really need to make sure that people are optimizing all of these things in their care and have uh, these three different components actively addressed in their care. How much they need varies from one person to the next and from one situation to the next, but we really want to try to strive to have this type of interdisciplinary care as much as possible. So in interdisciplinary pain care, the, the primary goal is to help patients learn how to live with their pain, right? I'm going to get through that because this is an older slide set. Well, I'll go through this anyway. All right. So the primary goal is to help patients learn to live with pain. 
So a lot of times when I say that, people have a hard time understanding, what does that mean? Learn to live with pain. So let's say that the square depicts your life, right? If somebody were to ask you about your life, what kinds of things would you say, would you talk about? What kinds of things fill your life? Grandchildren. Grandchildren. Kids, work, leisure activities, hobbies, right? These are the things that give our lives meaning, right? One day a pain condition sets in and it takes center stage, but we still have space in our life for all the other things that give us meaning. Over the course of time, as this condition goes from acute to chronic, it starts to radiate out and overshadow all the other aspects of our lives. You know, we find that people have decreased activity levels because of the pain condition. They pull away from a lot of different activities, pull away from work, pull away from family activities. That oftentimes leads to increased emotional distress, whether that takes the form of depression, anxiety, as clinical diagnoses, or just as we define those words in a dictionary. Sleep disturbances can develop, and those sleep disturbances can be related to the pain, related to the emotional distress, or related to the medication regimen that they're taking. People have increased number of doctor office visits. You know, we've had many patients tell us that the most significant social interaction is when they come to our clinic. And I think that's sad because I know the people that work in our clinic. <laughs> Interpersonal problems can start to develop. Um, you know, and this is where your coworkers hear you make comments like that and they get upset with you when you go back to the clinic. Now, interpersonal problems can develop where, you know, as people pull away from life, as they're not doing the things that give them meaning, it can start to cause rifts in relationships and physical deconditioning can start to set in. And so all of a sudden, you talk to a person with chronic pain, they're no longer telling the story of their life and their hobbies and their grandkids and those things, but they tell the story of the pain's life, about their medications, about the next procedure that they have, about different trials. But it's easy to understand how this transition occurs because the pain has started to overshadow all the other aspects of their life. So the goal of pain management is to decentralize the role of pain in a person's life. Um, we can't get rid of it, we can't make it go away, but decentralize the role of pain so that people have space for all the other things that give them meaning. So the way that we do this from a pain psychology perspective, there's oftentimes um, CBT-based interventions, cognitive behavioral therapy-based interventions that are offered. Uh, more often than not, these things are offered in group settings. Um, and most frequently, these things are once a week over an eight to 10 week period. And while most systems or most clinicians have kind of differences in terms of how they deliver this, I think generally speaking, you're going to find that the curriculum components have a lot of consistency and a lot of um, uh, commonalities, whether you're in the Kaiser system, the VA system, in private practice and workers' comp, there's a lot more overlap than there are differences. And so I'm going to go over what the common pieces are. Oftentimes, there's an overview of pain, uh, very similar to what we just went over right now, helping patients have a better context of what they're experiencing in their body. We talk about pacing of activities. Um, when a person's living with pain, overactivity isn't good for them, but then we also know immobilization's not good. And so it's a fine line between doing too much and too little, but that fine line can jump around from one, one day to the next or from one part of the day to the next. So helping patients learn how to navigate that fine line and maximize their functioning is a part of what we do in pacing of activities. Helping patients understand a little bit more about the physiology of pain, helping understand more about the physiology of stress, what's happening in the body as they experience pain in stressful situations, and then teaching them different strategies such as different types of relaxation exercises to help mediate this response. Going over sleep, uh, difficulties falling asleep, staying asleep, or getting a restful sleep. What are different behaviors and skills that people can use to improve? Stress management, helping people identify what are stressors in their home environment, in their work environment that can be influencing what's going on for them. 
helping them develop active strategies to manage these stressors, different types of cognitive restructuring exercises. We focus on communication skills. And then lastly, and very importantly, flare management planning. You know what I always tell patients when we go over flare management? I tell them, and it's usually the last session, I tell them that if they do every single thing exactly as they learn from us, and they, they consistently work on the skills and techniques that we've taught them, the one thing that I can guarantee them is that they're going to have a flare because that's the nature of chronic pain. We can't fix chronic pain, but we know that those flares are going to continue to exist. So if we know that this is something that's going to happen, let's maximize the preparation for these so we can decrease the amount of time that somebody spends in that flared state. And so that's an important part of it. Because if a person just participates in these programs and they find that their functioning improves and nobody ever talks to them about the normalcy of those flares, then the first time they have that flare, it's going to be a significant setback. And they're going to question, why did I bother going through all that effort doing all these different exercises? So the flare management is actually a very significant part of the, the, the education work. I'm going to, in the, in the time that I have, I'm going to try to go over two of the different components of um, the pain psychology education in more detail um, just so that people have a better understanding of what it is. Um, you know, a lot of physicians, when they refer for psychology services, the referral question, the reason for referral is always the same. Please see pain psychology for mindfulness, biofeedback, CBT. Thank you. And, you know, it, it just becomes like a, a common statement. Where I, I think a lot of times they know, okay, these are things linked to psychology, but a lot of times the clinicians don't really understand what these things are. So I want to break some of these pieces down a little bit so that people understand what these things are, what it looks like clinically. Um, but then also for some of the psychologists in the audience, I recognize that there are a lot of folks who've just been thrust into working with pain populations, and you may have a good health psychology background, but really don't necessarily have a lot of experience with pain so hopefully some of this education could be beneficial as well. So our brains are always on. The brain is always processing information around us. And one of the things that the brain's responsible for is detecting the presence of threats and stressors. Whenever the brain detects the presence of a threat or a stressor, it activates the sympathetic nervous system, right? And this is the fight or flight response in your body, right? All of you remember this from 10th grade biology. Whenever the sympathetic nervous system gets activated, a whole host of changes happen in the body. Heart rate increases, blood pressure increases, breathing patterns change, blood vessels constrict, digestive processes slow down, stress hormones get released in the body. And all this happens instantly. We don't do anything to make it happen. It's all regulated by the brain when the brain detects the presence of a stressor. As soon as the brain detects that a stressor is no longer present, it activates a parasympathetic nervous system, which brings the body right back down to its previous baseline. Right? And again, this is all automated by the brain nervous system. We don't have to do anything to make it happen. So why is this important in the context of pain? Well, if you look at some of the changes that happen when the, nervous, when the sympathetic nervous system gets activated, some of these things can directly affect the pain condition. Think about a person who's got chronic low back pain, right? If their muscles are tighter than they need to be, or if blood vessels a little bit more constricted, it makes sense that that's going to potentially amplify pain that they're experiencing in that part of their body. And so this is one of the reasons why, not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons why and one of the mechanisms as to why stress can worsen a chronic pain condition is through this activity of the body's nervous system. Right? And so if this is true, and it is true because I'm not going to lie to you, at least not today I won't lie to you, pain itself is a physical stressor. Right? So the physical experience of pain is going to cause activation of the nervous system. But then that nervous system activation, based on what I just said, is going to turn around and feed back into the pain. So it becomes a loop, right, where the pain feeds off itself. But we're still talking about just the physical experience of pain. When people have pain, they have emotional responses as well. People may have anxiety, anger, guilt, 
sadness, any one of these emotions or a combination of all of these. But the thing is, each of these emotions are also stressors. And so they also will cause some degree of sympathetic activation, right? And then those things start to feed back into the pain. But we're still talking about just the physical and emotional experience of pain. People have lives outside of pain. They have stressors, issues related to finances, relationships, diet, sleep. These external stressors have their own set of emotions that go with them, which cause activation of the nervous system and feed into the pain. So we've already established that we can't make the pain go away, but it's important to be able to learn how to break this cycle on both of these sides. And so this is where relaxation training comes in, right? It's helping patients learn how to break the cycle on this side, where even if there's a lot of stress that's going on in a person's life, what can they do to help quiet this nervous system reactivity? And so breathing and relaxation exercises that we teach patients are specifically targeting this. So when you hear a patient who comes into your office and they say, yeah, I saw the psychologist and they taught me breathing, uh, now you have a little bit more of a context for what is that breathing supposed to do. It's not just meant to be uh, just a panacea, but it's meant to be a tool that a person uses to help with management of their pain. But we went over the cycle of breaking it on this side. We also need to learn how to break the cycle on this side. And doing that involves addressing cognitive processes. Between the experience of pain and the emotions that a person has or the activation of the nervous system, there's thought processes that occur. Now, as human beings, we act as if we're stimulus response creatures, right? That something happens and we have our consequences as a result of that, right? So for example, if I were to say to this person sitting in front of me, that's a nice black shirt you have on with the rainbow, right? And if she were to look at me, just like you're doing right now, she might smile. You might think to yourself, oh, I'm glad that he noticed my shirt. You know, I thought it would be a nice bright thing in the desert. It's long sleeves. I thought it would be cool for, for the room that we're in. I'm glad that he noticed it, right? So consequently, emotionally, she might feel content. Behaviorally, she might smile. And physiologically, lower level of activation, right? Except for the fact that I'm putting her on the spot. But let's say that one of her, her colleagues is in the audience, and they just woke up from their slumber right now, and they say, hey, wait a second. You know, I saw him talking to you. What was that all about? Why were you smiling? And she might say, oh, it's because he was commenting on my shirt, right? Well, she just linked it to the situation, right? But it's actually not the situation that caused that, but rather it's how she interpreted it, right? Because the exact same situation could have gone a very different way, right? The same situation. I like the shirt that you have on. If she thought to herself, you know, when I walked down the hall today, you know, one of the housekeepers, he noticed the shirt that I was wearing, and he kind of looked at me funny, and when I got on the elevator, some kids looked at me funny too. And come to think of it, when I was at work one day, somebody asked me at work, are you wearing that today? You know, why does everybody have to pick on what I wear? Why can't he just focus on himself and not pick on people in the audience? If that's what she was thinking, right? Emotionally, she'd have a very different response, right? Behaviorally, she'd probably become more irritable. She might snap at me, right? She might throw her water bottle at me. And physiologically, have a lot higher level of uh, sympathetic nervous system reactivity, Right? And in that case, her colleague asks her, gosh, why were you so irritated? Why were you so upset? Oh, because he made a comment about my shirt. She's still attributing it to the situation, even though it's her thought processes that influence this. And that's actually what's at the crux of cognitive behavioral theory, is it says it's not the situation that determines what our physical, emotional, behavioral outcomes are, but it's how we interpret these things that influence the outcomes. But the challenge is, is that our thought processes oftentimes occur in our subconscious. Right? We're not actively aware of what we're thinking of all the time. Right? If we were, life couldn't move at the pace at which it moves. Right? Um, 
Think about it. If you're driving a car and you come up to an intersection and all of a sudden there's a light that goes from green to yellow, if you had to stop and, whoa, that was green a second ago, it just turned to yellow. And I don't like the color yellow. And then, oh, it just turned to, if everything had to be processed, we couldn't live our lives, right? Not the way that we do. So it's actually adaptive for so many of our thoughts to happen in our subconscious and for them to be automatic this way, right? So, so many of our thoughts occur in our subconscious, but when they lead to negative outcomes, this is when we need to try to do something about them. But where do our thoughts come from? Where does this subconscious come from? All of this originates early on in our life. The messages that we get from teachers, the messages that we get from other kids, from parents, you know, adverse life experiences. You know, we talked about the um, adverse childhood experiences, excuse me, um, emotional abuse, right? That fits into some of this stuff, right? You know, the messages that kid gets. You know, when my nephew was young, if I took him out to Half Moon Bay, I live in California, so if I, Half Moon Bay is just a coastal town. If I took him out and said, I'm going to show you the edge of the world. If you look and see where the sky touches the water, that's the edge of the universe. And you're going to see that ship fall off the universe in a second, right? If I told him that when he was young, he would believe me, right? Because he sees me as a, an elder, somebody to respect, right? I don't know why he would respect me, but he still sees me as somebody to respect. And so he'd believe that. He'd go back home to Texas and tell his sister or tell his mom that, you know, hey, MJ showed me the end of the world. She would call me up, upset that he's going to fail geography. Um, <laughs> but he believed it because it was a message that came from somebody that he respected. That's a relatively benign thing, though, right? And that's the reason why kids believe in things like the Tooth Fairy, the Easter Bunny, Santa Claus. Um, but what if the message they get isn't that benign? What if it's things like, you can't do anything right, you're a screw-up, you're stupid, right? Those messages carry a lot more weight. Those are direct messages that start to become part of the programming of a child. But there's also indirect messages. The last kid to get picked to be on a team, right? There may not be something outright there, but there's an indirect message that I must not be good enough, right? And all of these start to become part of the programming that people have early on in life that become the lenses through which they view themselves and the which they view their role in the world. And so these become a part of our subconscious processing, and these help determine what our automatic thoughts are. So helping to identify thought processes that lead to maladaptive outcomes is at the crux of cognitive behavioral theory. And catastrophization, I'm sure all of you have heard of catastrophization. This is exaggerated cognitive processes where it's characterized by magnification. You know, this is the worst possible pain ever. There's a lot of rumination, a sense of helplessness. This is an aspect of cognition um, that leads to negative outcomes. You know, we know catastrophization is associated with higher levels of depression, higher levels of disability. So what we do in the context of pain is we try to help patients become more aware of what their thought processes are in the context of their experiences. So for example, if somebody awakens with a pain flare and they think this will never end, life is terrible, the day is ruined, consequently, of course, they're going to experience some degree of affective distress. Um, behaviorally, they may either overextend themselves or isolate, neither of which is adaptive. And they're going to have higher levels of sympathetic activation, which the changes that occur physiologically from that are going to worsen their pain which are going to lead to more polarized thoughts, and it's just going to continue to feed that vicious cycle. So we can't change the situation. We can't go and just change somebody's emotions, right? So the thing that we target are the thought processes. But it's not as simple as trying to turn a negative thought into something positive. What we're really targeting is the accuracy and the helpfulness of the thoughts and trying to modify the thoughts until they are more accurate and more helpful. So 
helping a person realize, okay, you know what, it's not that there's nothing I can do. I can actually practice self-management skills and validating that, yeah, life may feel terrible now, but I know that this flare will end um, and not jumping to conclusions. I don't know what the rest of the day will look like, but I can make the most of it by pacing my activities. If we help a person develop a healthier set of thoughts that are more accurate, more helpful, that doesn't mean that they're immune to depression or anxiety. They may still feel some of those emotions, but the intensity of those emotions becomes less. The likelihood that they engage in more adaptive behaviors is higher, and that in turn leads to decreased sympathetic activation. And if they engage in behaviors like relaxation, exercise, things along those lines, there's a better likelihood that those things will work once they've addressed a lot of the thought processes that fuel that vicious cycle. So these CBT-based interventions have a lot of evidence to support them. Um, there was a study done many years ago that looked at a control group that had minimal treatment and a group of pain patients that had uh, CBT-based interventions. And they found that the people who participated in the CBT-based intervention um, had a significant reduction in their likelihood of going on to go on to long-term disability. And they evaluated these people five years later, and they found that the people in the CBT group had significantly less pain, higher activity, better quality of life, and better general health compared to the minimal treatment group. And the people who had the minimal treatment had three times more likely, or, or were three times more likely to go on to long-term disability. Gatchell quantified this and found that people who were at high risk for going on long-term disability, uh, they were placed in an early intervention program that had a CBT-based component to it. And they found that the people who participated in the CBT-based component um, had about a 40% reduction in their overall costs of care and um, uh, lost wages and such compared to the people that had minimal treatment. And a Cochrane review found moderate quality evidence um, for improvements in pain and daily functioning with CBT-based programs. So a lot of evidence to support CBT-based interventions, and I intentionally spent most of my time talking about those because that's most of what people do. That's the most commonly used uh, intervention for pain management by a psychologist, but that's not the only thing. Right? The title of this talk is a toolbox, and so I want to talk about what some of the other evidence-based approaches are that psychologists use in treating pain. So biofeedback is basically put in a very simple way. It's when we hook people up to uh, instrumentation that gives us information about their degree of physiologic reactivity. Right? So we basically put sensors on a person's body, plug it into a computer, and it gives us a plot of different aspects of sympathetic activation. I mean, this is me simplifying it in a very significant way. But that's essentially what it is when we do biofeedback. And what we do is we help a person learn what their baseline is, what their baseline level of sympathetic drive is or baseline level of physiologic reactivity is, how their body changes when they uh, get exposed to a stressor, and how long it takes for their body to recover after that stressor is gone. And then we teach them the different cognitive behavioral strategies and relaxation strategies to help them change that but they're constantly getting feedback on the screen to help them gauge how effective they are with those different strategies. This can be immensely beneficial for people that have uh, limited awareness or limited confidence in the link between stress and pain because they have feedback right in front of them on a screen of what's actually happening in their body. Um, it's non-invasive and it's an active treatment, meaning it requires people to actually do something in order to create an effect. Um, Biofeedback's been studied the most in headache. Um, there was a study that was done looking at outcomes, um, and they found medium to large effect sizes for biofeedback with tension-type headaches, and the results were stable over a 14-month period. And people had improvements in headache frequency, perceived self-efficacy, depressive and anxious symptoms, and medication usage, um, and it was superior to weightless control and, and plain headache monitoring. 
Um, and EMG for tension type headaches was superior to placebo and relaxation therapies. But the biggest limitation of biofeedback is that it hasn't been sufficiently studied with other pain um, conditions. Uh, it's been studied most extensively within um, headache. And also the equipment tends to be expensive. Um, and so a lot of clinicians don't reimburse or they don't do it because of the expense and because a lot of times the reimbursement's very poor as well because uh, a lot of times payers don't pay for it. Um, so it's not as commonly found even though it is an efficacious treatment. Mindfulness-based stress reduction. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn created a curriculum in 1979 that's comprised of eight weeks, two and a half hour sessions each, and a full day retreat. It's highly experiential. There's not as much in the way of didactics, but there's a lot of experiential meditation practice that occurs. There's group discussion, and there's a lot of emphasis on the practice that people do between the sessions. And John Kabat-Zinn describes mindfulness as the awareness that emerges through paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally to the unfolding experience moment to moment. What that basically means is just staying in the present moment. You know, when a person's prone to depression or anxiety, there's either a tendency to ruminate on things that happened in the past or worrying about what's going to happen in the future. But the reality is, is the only thing that we have the power to influence is what's happening at the present time. And so helping people become aware of that and helping people try to stay in that space is what we're trying to do in mindfulness work. And in pain, what we want to try to do is help people be in the space of their pain without having and forming that emotional attachment to it. Um, and that, so basically having that pain, being in that moment, but not thinking about, well, what's this going to cause or fixating on the emotions that come with it, but just being present with the pain. Um, and it's a very difficult thing for patients to do. But when patients are able to do it, I'm going to show you in a couple of seconds what the outcomes are that are associated with it. Um, but this has physiologic implications because as a patient's able to do this, that stops a lot of that sympathetic drive. But then what it also does is it's an exercise in desensitization because it helps show a person that, okay, I can experience this pain and the worst possible scenario that I always imagine doesn't actually happen. Um, what they found most significant with mindfulness-based stress reduction is that there's a reduction in pain intensity when people engage in mindfulness practices over the course of time. Um, but again, mindfulness isn't something that's geared toward change or controlling pain. It's more about staying in the present moment. And then the last thing I'll talk about is acceptance and commitment therapy. And this is based on a relational approach to human language and condition. And it uses acceptance and mindfulness processes, as well as commitment and behavior change processes, to create psychological flexibility. And so in ACT, or acceptance and commitment therapy, you're moving away from strategies and techniques to try to control pain and focus more on long-term values. What are the th things that are important to a person and how can you focus on those in living a value-filled life rather than focusing on pain and symptoms that a person has? So rather than I need to get this pain under better control and then I'll focus on getting in a better shape and then I'll focus on trying to be a better parent, it's more of how can I still be a good parent or get myself in shape despite the fact that this pain is present. But it's not technique it's more focused, again, on mindfulness strategies and helping a person actualize. And so ACT, or acceptance, has been associated with decreases in pain intensity, pain-related anxiety, avoidance, depression, and disability. Um, and it had small to medium effects on pain intensity, depression, anxiety, physical well-being, and quality of life. And this is actually equivalent to the findings that we see with cognitive behavioral therapy. So people often wonder, then which one is better? Should I do ACT or should I do CBT? Well, there's a study done to examine this very thing. You know, is there a difference between CBT versus ACT? And they found that the outcomes were very similar in both groups when people participated in either form of treatment. 
and that the effects were maintained over six months in both groups, whether people did ACT or CBT. And there were no significant differences between people in either treatment modality, but the one thing that did differ is that the people who did ACT treatment were more satisfied with their treatment compared to the folks who were in the CBT-based intervention. So what that means is basically you choose a treatment pathway that seems to be the best fit for the patient, but both of these things are equally efficacious. So with that, we have all of two and a half minutes for questions. So thank you guys for your time, and I'll have a couple of minutes for questions.